Welcome to the Heights Sermon Series Podcast, where each week you'll hear a new message that'll help you with your life shaped by the Word. Well, good morning, everybody. Great to see you on this chilly day. A little bit of a cold walk into the church, huh? My face was frozen, but uh, it's warming up. Good to see everybody. Hey, I want to follow up real quickly on the testimony that we just heard. Wasn't that a wonderful and encouraging word from Greg and Amanda? And, uh, you know, we've had a variety of tools for you to use as you go throughout this 21 days. Maybe, maybe you haven't really used the 21 days. Well, start today. Make it seven days of, of prayer and fasting. And uh, one of the tools we've had, as you heard them refer to, uh, is we open the doors of the church from 6.30 to 7.15 each morning. You, you don't have to be here for that whole 45-minute time. You might come in and pray for, for five, ten minutes. But uh, I really want to encourage everybody uh, this week, come by and pray for a few minutes uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful opportunity early in the morning just to walk in here and be still, be quiet. There's usually a pastor here that kind of opens up for two or three minutes, but the time is really yours uh, to use as you want. And people just kind of spread out and, and pray. And uh, I know that every one of us has things on our heart, things we're excited about, concerned about. And I uh, just want to maybe encourage you to use that tool uh, this week. Just come by for a moment and uh, have that word of prayer Monday through Friday. I think I think Greg and Amanda, and there's a handful of people that have, have been in here every single day, Monday through Friday, that this has been open. I, I think I've been here twice, so I'm not as committed as a lot of these folks. But uh, hey, you know what? One time's a special opportunity. I hope you'll do that. And then, of course, next Sunday, we'll be kind of concluding uh, the 21 days of prayer and fasting, and we've got a really special service designed for that. So I hope you'll be looking forward to that as, as we move toward next Sunday. It's been a wonderful uh, time, and I'm sure praying God is working and speaking to you. Again, we use the phrase 21 days. If this hasn't been something you've grabbed a hold of, make it seven. Make it, make it this week and uh, have a special time with the Lord. Well, I'm, gu- I'm guessing most of us have heard the phrase, when in Rome, do... Okay, so you're familiar with that, right? Hey, try new things, experience new things. That can be just a, a really innocent little encouragement, right? Try, try something new in life, enjoy, experiment. Of course, it can also be kind of a subtle suggestion to maybe throw off restraint. Uh, it's a particular new thing that we want to try that maybe we shouldn't be. And, and, it, and when you're saying that in Rome, you realize Rome at that time, m- much like I think the United States today, Rome was a place where you could find everything. You could find every kind of person, every kind of people, every kind of food, every kind of religion, every kind of idea, every kind of thought, every kind of sexual opportunity. You could find everything. You could find anything in the United States. I mean, Rome. You could find it all in Rome. And you know, that was the concern of the writer of Hebrews, that, that, that book at the, almost near the end of the New Testament. 
that the writer of Hebrews is addressing this issue. There is a group of believers. They're small. They're a very, very small minority. They have, they have no real influence. They have no real say in anything. And, uh, and they're under attack. How does our faith flourish? How does our faith grow when it's being mocked and attacked? How does our faith grow when it's being tempted with everything there is? That's what the writer of Hebrews is addressing, I think, a lot like the question we're addressing right now. How how can we grow? How can we flourish when under attack, when temptation comes from so many different places? And the bulk of Hebrews, the bulk of that book, is really addressing the question, let's make sure that the faith is real. Let's make sure that the faith is genuine. Then we can talk about growing. It's a genuine faith. Now let's grow it. And as we come to the end of Hebrews, those last two chapters, chapter 12 and chapter 13, it says, okay, our faith is real. Our faith is growing. We've got, we've got what needs to be going on in our heart and mind going on. Now how do we leave these doors? Whether those doors are the doors of the church or the, of the doors of your home. How do we go out there and live in that world? And that's the context in which we find Hebrews chapter 13 verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Think of the question he's answering. How, how, how do we survive? How, how do we grow? How do we work through persecution? Let marriage be held in honor among all. Not just your own marriage, but the institution of marriage. Let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. So why do we want to work hard at marriage? Why do we want to protect it? Why do we want to respect it? Because God will judge. You know, it's interesting, those words, God, God will judge. I, I think this is true even in the church today. You know, we hear those words. I don't think our first thought is ourselves. I, I think our first thought is, what's wrong with God? <laughs> I mean, God judging can't be about me. I'm okay. Why is God judging? He's in a bad mood, I guess. Hey, what if God was doing us a favor? What, what if God judged because we were destroying ourselves? Isn't that kind of what we learned last week? We, we looked at, at some data, some scientific, socioeconomic data, not put together by pastors or counselors or, or even Christians. They, they said that the data was overwhelming And they said profoundly, one man, one woman in marriage, raising kids for life, every time you step out of that, you start to break things. And they apologized for saying it, remember? They desperately didn't want to sound like, well, me. I don't want to sound like a preacher. I don't want to sound like I'm carrying some moral value, some moral pulpit. But what did did they say? The data is overwhelming. So when you step outside of God's design for love, sex, and marriage, you start breaking things. You break things in your life. You break things in people's lives that you love. And ultimately, and this was the focus of this, remember, it was an economics book, you actually start breaking society. 
No one individual is responsibility, but when the attitude, when the action adds up to a societal level, we start breaking down the entirety of society. Wouldn't you think at some point God steps in and says, hey, I really need to address this. I really need to say, hey, don't go that way. Well, he's already said that, right? We don't always respond to his word, so sometimes we have to respond to his discipline. God's doing a favor when he judges. God's doing a favor when he disciplines. God will judge. So last week we said, hey, sometimes our spouse, sometimes our marriage isn't very motivating it's not getting us up to do what we need to do. And we say, hey, we gotta have, we gotta have some motivations maybe then bigger. And last week was one of those motivations. It works. Whatever I'm feeling, whatever I'm experiencing, the reality is, this is what works. Today I want to look at a second motivation. Why do we stay inside of, why do we work, why do we respect, why do we protect God's design for love, sex, and marriage? What if I were to tell you that in marriage, God might be doing something bigger than marriage? That would be a motivation that rises above marriage, that rises above my spouse, that arises above whatever I'm experiencing in that moment. What if God was doing something really big? What would that be? Well, let's back up for a moment. And when I say let's back up, let's back way up. What makes Satan, Satan? Have you you thought about that question this week? Probably not. I have. (laughs) What makes Satan, Satan? We don't have to guess we're told what makes Satan, Satan. We're actually told what was going on in his mind when he became who he is now. In, in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12, it's an interesting chapter. The first 11 verses are about the king of Babylon, an incredibly evil, an incredibly wicked king. And then we get to verse 12, and all of a sudden there's a shift. There's a turn, and it seems like Isaiah goes behind the evil. He goes behind the king of Babylon, and he looks at what's driving all of this. And guess what? What drives it in the king of Babylon drives it in all of us. And we hear the thinking. We hear the heart and the mind of Satan. Listen to this, Isaiah 14, verse 12. How you, have, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High God. What made Satan Satan? Very simple. When he looked at God, he saw something bigger than him. And he didn't want there to be something bigger than him. He didn't want there to be something more beautiful than him. He didn't want somebody else's agenda to be bigger than his agenda. That is the heart and mind of Satan. And he fought the bigness of God. He lost, by the way, if you aren't familiar with the whole story. He, he did lose that fight. But in the fight, he fell from heaven 
And in the fight, in the attack against the bigness of God, he took those that were made in the image of God and he infected every one of us with the same addiction to self that he had. The same addiction to self. Every one of us addicted to self. Do you know why we go to hell? It's not because we broke rules. It's not because we didn't obey enough of the rules. That's, that's not why we go to hell. We go to hell because we don't want to. And we prove it in this life. We go to hell because we don't want to be around. We don't want to be under. We don't want to be with something, someone bigger than us. God doesn't send people to hell. We choose not to go to heaven. We're addicted to self. Now, the good news is that addiction can be broken, right? The good news is God doesn't quit on us. God comes and rescues us from the addiction of, of self. And many of us, I, I, I would hope all of us in this room, but many of us in this room watching online, we turned from self, didn't we? We call it repentance. I was 17 years old when I did that. I turned from sin and self. I turned, I repented, right? I repented from a devotion, a love, a commitment to my sin, myself. I turned and I made my devotion, my treasure, my heart, my faith, Jesus. I did that. Many of you have done that. And then I just travel right back to that old addiction to self. I can say that comfortably in front of you because, well, y'all do it too. We go right back. It's so hard to break that tendency. Our brain is so wired to place me at the center of literally everything. This goes on in all of us. We evaluate. I, I evaluate every person. I evaluate every situation. I evaluate the past. I evaluate the future on what it does for me. Does this help me? Does this protect me? Does this advance me? Does this hurt me? I'm tired. I know I committed to be something and do something, but I'm, I'm worn out. So, you know, me comes first. I mean, at the center of everything is what I want. And how I feel. And, and we all battle this. We battle it all the time. You know, it's crazy. Gosh, it sounds like I'm so down on people. I'm not. It's just a reality. I actually think when we're being good, we're being selfish. I actually think that people, a lot of times, not every time, but a lot of times when you and I are being our most sacrificial we're, I mean, like we're really giving up. We're really not taking care of ourselves to bless, help something, someone else. A lot of times the reason we do that is because the way it makes us look. You know, people applaud me for that when I look real sacrificial. You know, we do that because the way it makes me feel, right? I feel, I feel bad for these things I've done over here, so I'm going to counterbalance it by this really sacrificial good thing over here, and then I get the benefit of telling myself, well, look, there it is right there. I can surely feel good about myself. I'm a good person. Now, I may have done something good and sacrificial, but the driver, the motive was me. The driver, the motive was self. You say, well, pastor, you're telling on yourself. You're not telling on me. I'm not near as bad as, not near as, bad as you. Okay, I'll take that. But I want to encourage you to do something. Listen to yourself this week. 
Listen to the dialogue, conversation that goes on up here like every minute of the day. And you're going to hear something very, very, very common. I, 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 me, 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 I, 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 me, 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 I, I, me, me, I. That's the evaluation of everything. And this is why God says to you and to me, not because he needs a rule to decide whether we're good people and we can go to heaven. He's trying to break the addiction that we've given ourselves to in Satan. So God says to us in Philippians chapter 2, 3, do nothing. Not do, don't do most things. Not most of this week. No, do no thing. Do absolutely nothing at all from selfish ambition. Do nothing from conceit. That phrase means don't have a thought, don't react, don't decide, don't move, don't turn left, don't turn, don't do anything that has its sole motivation being you. Now that, 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 that verse isn't saying I, I can't do anything. I, you know, paying bills is for me, right? And that verse isn't saying I can't do anything to provide for needs, to, to take care of myself. It's just saying don't let self be the primary motivator for anything. What am I going to do with all this space up here? Because that's what it's dedicated to. Well, okay, in humility. Now remember, humility doesn't think thinking bad of yourself. Humility just means I'm not thinking of myself. But in humility, count others as more significant. Count others as more important. Count others first. Okay, I've got needs to take care of today. My needs, my well-being. But what I'm going to do first, what I'm going to act on first, is the well-being and needs of others. Well, now, who are these others that God's talking about? Well, that's... That's the hard part of this command. The others are roughly everybody on the planet. What? Yeah, everybody. Everyone. Friend, foe, family, stranger. This is is literally how I'm to work and live and breathe and respond to every single person I see. Put their needs ahead of mine. Put their needs before mine. And as if this challenge isn't enough, <laughs> you know, it's not an assignment. See, this is what the preacher tells you. Okay, we've read this verse. So I say, okay, here's what y'all do. Go home this week and pick somebody out and serve them before you, that, you know, you serve yourselves. And then you and I go home and do it. And some of us get that done on Tuesday. Others, it's Friday. Others doing it Saturday night before you come back to church. But we do it for that one person. We check it off. Woo, gosh, that was hard. It's not an assignment. It's a way of life. You're, you're never done. You, you never finish. Well, that one really cost me a lot. That one really made me tired. Surely a little bit of... No, do no thing. This is always with all people. That's how we move out of the place of Satan. And we move to the place of Christ. Now, if you looked at Philippians chapter 2, or for that matter, if you look at the whole book of Philippians, there'll be a word you won't see, and that word is marriage. Now, we're in a marriage series. This is a marriage sermon, and yet I'm, I'm quoting a verse here. I'm anchoring to a verse here. Well, it doesn't even say that's for marriage. No, no, it, it is for all people. 
But what this verse does is it moves me off the place of Satan because that place ends bad, right? And it moves me to the place of Jesus. It moves me to the place of being like Jesus. Well, what's Jesus like? Oh, gosh, there's wonderful number of verses in the New Testament that just kind of in one sentence encapsulate. It perfectly describe, define Jesus in this one clear sense. Boy, one of those is Mark 10, 45. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Jesus, the Most High God, the big one, The one that Satan looked at and said, I don't want you being bigger than me. That one comes to serve your needs, even to the point that it cost his life, right? Where did he stop? Because don't we all, okay, okay, I get it, serve others' needs. But like there's a stopping point, right? Yeah, you can stop when Jesus was done, when it kills you. Okay, that right there, you're done. You see, that's the place. That's the goal is to be like him, to be operating from where Jesus operated. You know, folks, Jesus didn't come to make himself the big deal. He didn't come to force his agenda on you. He came to serve you. Now, wait a minute. I just Did I just say that Jesus didn't come to be the big deal? I mean, is that right? I mean, did, like, doesn't he tell us? He's supposed to be the Lord of our lives. I'm pretty sure if Jesus is Lord of my life, that means he's the big deal, doesn't it? Well, wait a minute. Now, if Jesus is saying, make me the big deal, and Satan is saying, make me the big deal, aren't they just fighting and which one gets to win? Aren't they really being the same thing? That's a good question. No. Satan wants to be the big thing in your life. And he gets there by deceiving you. He gets there by lying to you, and here's how he tricks you. He goes over and he he goes around the corner and he hides behind the word I. He hides behind the word me. You think you're talking to yourself. You think you're having a conversation with yourself. You think you're serving the most important person in the world that you love the very most, yourself. When in reality, it's Satan that is driving that. So he has to lie to you. He has to deceive you. He has to trick you. Why? Because when he's the big thing in your life, he has his best opportunity to destroy you. That is his goal, to steal, kill, and destroy. You realize Satan has no friends in heaven? Have you ever thought about, I mean, in in hell? Get to hell, you're going to find out who his favorite angels are. We're going to get to hell and we're going to find out who his favorite people are. Matter of fact, I'm guessing some of you have a couple of ideas right now. Surely he's one of Satan's favorites. Did you know that in hell, nobody's friends? Satan has nobody he cares for, that he blesses, that he protects. Satan has nobody that he loves. He has no favorite among angels or people. He only hates. That's all he can be. That is all he can do. Now, Jesus, on the other hand, also wants to be the big thing in your life, but he does not deceive you or trick you. He doesn't even overwhelm you. He could, couldn't he? He literally could just walk through the door and take you over, and that'd be the end of the discussion. But he doesn't do that either. He invites. I invite you. I I ask you to consider making me the big thing in your life. And think of the place from which he does that. He does that from having served your needs. To the point of his own life. To the point of his death. 
having completely served us, he says, make me the big thing. Why does he want to be the big thing? Is he on a little ego trip? No, it's when he's the big thing, we can break Satan being the big thing. And his goal of being the big thing in our lives is our life, our life eternal, our abundance, our well-being is his agenda in your life. So make him the big thing. And how do we make Jesus the big thing? How do we live that? How do we exercise that? By making each other the big thing, which is a mountain of an assignment, isn't it? I mean, that, that's, just, that's just a really big, I mean, everybody, everybody, and not just here at church in the room, everybody at work, everybody at school, everybody walking up and down the street, make everybody a big thing. Serve their needs, their well-being for you. Do for them what you're depending on me to do for you. That's living the gospel. And I I think that is just such a profound and big challenge. It's such a mountain of assignment that, that you and I look at that and we just don't even take the first step. I mean, it's so big. You ever seen something like that? It's so big, you just, I, I don't even know where to start. I, I'm not going to get started. And so what happens is a multitude of us who call ourselves believers live our entire Christian life never considering Philippians 2, 3, never even taking a step toward it. And so I would like to suggest today that your marriage is a chance to reduce the mountain. Now, by reducing the mountain, I didn't say reduce the command. Okay, the the command is still all people everywhere. But I do have something unique in my marriage. In my marriage, I have a person I made a vow to. And I got a lot of people in my life I really love. I love my parents, but I didn't make a vow to them. I love my kids, I didn't make a vow to them. I've got some great friends, never made a vow to them. There's only actually one person on the planet I really actually made a vow to before God and man, right? And, and that was my spouse. What if God gives me marriage as a place, a person I chose, a person I vowed to do this with, and he says, start here. Now, you're not done here, but start here. Practice being like me right here. Do for them what you count on me doing for you. And, and here's the other thing marriage gives me that no other relationship, not parents, not children, grandchildren, not best friends. Here, here's what marriage gives me is a place where I can practice doing this 24-7 for the rest of life. You get no break from practicing being like Jesus with your spouse. God actually intended for there to be no break. Now, I'm not saying that to be funny. And I'm not saying that to be scary. Folks, a lot of us can be good. A lot of us can do good things for people, people we love, sometimes even people we don't love. We can muster up what it takes to do something good. And do you know what every one of us wants? A stopping point. Why? Because I'm tired, because I've done enough. Or I want a stopping point because they have ceased to be encouraging and motivating for me to be doing this. You know, they don't longer, they no longer serve it. Do you realize, folks, the stopping point is the beginning point of practicing being like Jesus? Is that, that's where you start 
doing for them what you count on them for Jesus. Have you ever thought about this? Jesus gets no break from being Jesus. Jesus gets no break from being Jesus for me. I need him to be that 24-7 without ever stopping. So if I'm really going to understand who Jesus is, really understand what his love is, what it does, and what it means, my best opportunity is to practice that love. And that really starts, it doesn't have to be that bad, but I mean, folks, I would actually say it really starts where I want to draw the line, where I say no more. I I don't want to do that. Because when I say no more with my spouse or a friend or anybody, any place I draw the line, that's where I say I'm going back to self. I was over here for a little bit doing the whole Jesus thing, but I'm done I'm done, I'm tired now, and they don't deserve it, and they're not doing it for me. By the way, they're not doing it for me. I mean, there's a little give and take here, right? Gosh, I wonder if, I wonder if Jesus could ever feel that way. I wonder if Jesus could ever feel like, hey, a little give and take here. Now, now your turn. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't, he doesn't ever stop. So my marriage is my place where I get to practice being like him 24-7 without a break. I need that relationship because I won't go get it on my own. I will not go on my own and get a, a relationship that locks me down to be good and sacrificial, holy for the well-being of it. I won't go seek that on my own. No, God gives us this relationship, puts it in a special place in our heart. Why? To practice being like him? So in marriage, we have that great opportunity. But marriage is, it's a tug of war, isn't it? It's, it's a tug of war. Who, who's going to win? You know what, we're, we're, what the tug of war is over? Who's biggest? Who gets to be big in this moment? We're having a tug of war over wants and desires and feelings. And I think we should do it this way with the kids. I think we should do it this way with the money. I think we should do this in this decision. And, 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 and both sides have a will. Both sides have a way. And every now and then, one just gets too big for their britches, right? They get big too many times in a row. And you know what? That's when you get mad. You get mad because they're bigger and that makes you mad. Selfishness, wanting to be big, is at the center of every problem we have in our marriage. Now, I I did not just say, I want to be clear, I did not just say every problem in marriage is because of your selfishness. Remember, I'm talking to your spouse too. (laughs) You're thinking, well, praise the Lord. Right? (laughs) You know, even if I can create a scenario where my spouse is entirely in the fault. I mean, I I could even tell you and you'd agree with me. Wow, I didn't think think that could happen. But yeah, they're 100% at fault. Do you know my selfishness is still going to make it hard for me to navigate that, to do what is right, to work through that, to deal with it, to respond in right ways? See, assigning fault 
doesn't mean selfishness is no longer an issue. Well, this is about them, not me. No, selfishness is always a problem. Wanting to be big in this moment is always my problem. And so what Philippians chapter 2, 3 is saying in my marriage is, okay, just go ahead and let them be big. Let them be big and and be okay with that because that's your opportunity to practice being like me. Now, let's be clear. Well, wait a minute. What, what if what a spouse is doing is actually sinful? Not, not just a disagreement about my way, their way, but what if what they're doing is actually sinful? What if it really is bad behavior? What about then? Do I make that big? Well, of course not. Does Jesus make big our sin? Does he make our bad behavior big? No, of course not. He's not okay with that. So what I need is, and boy, this is hard. What I need is wisdom, insight, to go behind the bad behavior, to go behind the sin and see the need, the legitimate need that is guiding their bad behavior. A legitimate need that they're trying to get fulfilled by bad behavior, by sin. And I need to figure out how to serve that need. Boy, think of the love the patience, the care that it takes to go around and get to that need, which is the love and the care and the patience it took for Jesus to go around our bad behavior and get to the need in our lives. It's just doing for somebody else what I'm absolutely counting on Jesus to do for me. Make him big. Now, if I make Jesus big in my marriage and that helps me make Jesus big and others big in all relationships, I mean, sooner or later, we've got, we've got one more practical question we have to answer. Who's taking care of me? Right? Because that's what I've been devoted to doing. So if I'm all busy now taking care of everybody under the sun, who's taking care of me? And Jesus said, I'm glad you've asked. I got, I got an answer. I've got a way we work this out. Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What are all these things? Well, if you read the 10, 15 verses before Matthew 6, they're talking about our needs. And the anxiety, the frustration, the tension, the work that we do to get our needs met. And so Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. Now, you know, all kingdoms have one thing in common. They have a a king. They have a king. It's the kingdom of God. So newsflash, you're not the king. It's God's kingdom and the kingdom of his Christ Jesus, it's Jesus' kingdom. So what Jesus is saying there is, seek me first. Well, when? Like, like at, at six in the morning? What, what does first mean? It means in everything you're doing. Philippians 2.3, Matthew 6.33 are to be thoughts that never leave us. Every relationship, every conversation, every decision. I'm spending $5, I'm spending $5,000. Every single thing I'm doing, I'm seeking first preeminently, prominently, how do I do this in a way that it shows Jesus is king in my life? That's all you need to focus on, Jesus says. Just focus on that one thing, and I'll take care of everything else you got going on. 
I mean, I mean it's, it's a promise. I'll take care of all the other needs. You just focus on making me the big thing in your life. And when we make Jesus the big thing, we're going to practice that. We're going to live that by making others big. We're going to serve their needs. We're going to do for them what we count on Jesus doing for us. What would that look like in our marriage? Got a couple of ideas here. Uh, Five things. Now, these aren't, hey, write these down. These are the five things you need to do. These five things could become 25 things. These five things are showing you a way of thinking. Every day, it might be a different word. It may be a a different action. But it, it guides us in how we think. And what we're talking about here is living the gospel. I've received the gospel, remember, Remember Revelation twelve eleven and how we live in a world of persecution? We receive the gospel, but then we live the gospel. Okay, let's practice that. Let's start that in our marriage. Forgive them, that's your spouse. Forgive them the way you depend on Jesus to forgive you. Okay, so you don't have to forgive your spouse if you're not depending on Jesus to forgive you. But if you are, then you should forgive them. Now, if, if you're like me, I forgive Karen, but I mean, you know, she needs a little lesson. I mean, it's for her well-being that she gets a little lesson from me. Hey, when Jesus forgives you, do you want him to give you a lesson? I'll be honest with you, I probably need the lesson. But if I'm also being honest, I don't want a lesson. I just want the forgiveness. Forgive them the way you're depending on Jesus to forgive you. No more, no less. Serve them. Serve them the way you depend on Jesus to serve you. Only give them the chance you're depending on Jesus to give you. If you've got a place where you draw the line, if you've got a place where they get no more chances, right, exactly the way you want Jesus to be with you, right? You want Jesus to have a place. Okay, I'm going to give you a chance, but right here I stop. Right here, no more, no more chances, No, I don't want that. Okay. Again, the only thing you're required to do for your spouse is what you're depending on Jesus to do for you. Seek to understand them. You know, folks, every time you and I use two words, dear Lord, do you know everything that follows, dear Lord, you are counting on Jesus listening, understanding, caring, acting, I mean, there's a lot that goes into understanding who you are, what you're going through, why you feel the way you feel, why you're acting the way you're acting. Aren't you glad Jesus understands? Understand your spouse in the same way you are desperately dependent upon Jesus understanding you. This last one I'm kind of proud of. I I was almost done and I came up with this one. Keep score. I know y'all don't do that in marriage, but think of others that do. Keep score only in the way you want Jesus to keep score with you. Now, don't we all? I don't want Jesus to keep score at all. I don't want him to keep score in who's ahead in the good. I don't want him to keep score of my fail. I don't want Jesus keeping any score. Only do for your spouse what you're counting on Jesus to do for you. You know the, the hard part about all this, folks? I'd love to say this is, this is the best marital advice in the world. 
Did you know you can do all this and it not make your spouse who you want them to be? And not make your marriage who you want it to be? Why would I do this? (laughs) To be like Jesus. And it won't work. I didn't say it won't work. I actually do believe it will give you all the marriage you want and all the spouse you want. But it's just not a guarantee. He said, well, how how do you know? Hmm. Because Jesus has perfectly been Jesus for me. And I'm confident that's not given him everything he'd like in this relationship. Jesus has perfectly been Jesus for me. And I'm confident there's a couple of changes he'd still like to see happen in my life. Yeah, folks, it's not go home and, hey, do this three times in a row and poof, out they pop. How wonderful that God has given us something bigger than our spouse, something bigger even than marriage. He's given himself. Make me the reason you do what you do. That's our motivation to keep going, to stop drawing lines, to stop having quitting places, to give another chance. Hey, for everybody in here that's not married and maybe thinking marriage is out there in your future, you know, I know you got a list of what you're looking for in a spouse. You know, it's amazing how much most of that list has nothing to do with building what you need in a marriage. How about this? Add this to the list. Before you say, I do, look at them and say, can I love and serve them at their worst selfishness? Do I with joy take them as an opportunity to grow in Christ-likeness, loving them at their worst selfishness? And you're saying, they're never selfish. I just want to ask you to ask somebody to pray for you. Let's pray. You're always the reason, Lord. What a good and worthy reason you are. And yet here, Lord, I feel like you've given me even something more than you. You've given me a cause, a reason, a purpose that's worthy of me. Lord, I I pray each of us here today. Would learn what it means to die to self and live to God. For those of us that are married, may we give great thanks for the opportunity to have a place where we practice that 24-7 for life so that we can carry it beyond our marriage to be ever-growing in Christ's likeness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.